Welcome to Veterans Connected, where maintenance and reliability expert and military veteran Eric Bevavino connects with fellow veterans in industry during each episode, where they exchange their experiences and discuss the transition from the military to industry and the paths and resources that led them to where they are today. The Veterans Connected podcast is proudly produced by the industry's leading network and learning community, Mobius Connect. Eric, over to you. All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm Eric Bevino, host of the Mobius Connect podcast focused on connecting military veterans to the maintenance and reliability community. Our aim here is to bridge the understanding gap between the military and civilian worlds, thereby improving the veteran transition journey and ultimately providing hope and a helping hand to any of our brothers and sisters out there struggling to find their way. We'll do this by interviewing veterans who have successfully made it through. For this session, we've chosen to interview one such Air Force veteran, Dave Howard, whose fascinating and patriotic story is a must listen for anyone interested in joining us on this mission. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? Great, great. How are you, Eric? It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, fantastic. Our listeners can't uh, see us on the video, but I am enjoying the picture of, is that a warthog behind you? That uh, is. Oh, yeah. 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 A, there's a warthog, there's a U2 over here, and there's an F4 over there. Oh, man. So uh, Yeah, if you listen to some of the earlier ones, we talked about F4 maintenance, actually with Brian Debshaw. We do, contrary to, to what you may have heard, have had two Air Force veterans on the podcast out of 10 or 11 so far. There you you're go. The, you're the third on this pre-4th of July holiday weekend. So what's better than that? I guess, yeah. Hopefully, like I said, I can live up to the hype. <laughs> well, fantastic. Fantastic. Why don't we start out with uh, who you are and what you're doing today? So yeah, um, my name is Dave Howard. I'm the CEO of uh, Airbus Instruments, also one of the co-founders here for Airbus Instruments in the U.S. Um, been uh, in the maintenance and reliability industry, well, since I got out of the military. So, um, and even did the same thing in the military for all intents and purposes. Um, from upstate New York, uh, came home to upstate New York after the military and uh, plan on doing this for the rest of my career, at least, because I pretty much love what I do. So, Fantastic. What uh, Two questions. What is Airbest Instruments, for those of us who don't know, including myself, since I've, I've been out of, I'm in lubricants, but I've been out of the maintenance and reliability consulting game for a little bit here. And so tell us about that. And, and also tell us, what upstate New York means to you? Is it Buffalo or Syracuse? Oh, or no. <laughs> so something Airbus quite Inst- different. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Airbus Instruments, uh, you know, our, our tagline is we're the masters of machine health. So uh, we design and manufacture and through our distribution network, sell our uh, vib- portable vibration and balancing instrumentation, as well as our online wireless sensor technology our uh, video vibration analysis technology, Dragon Vision. Um, the wireless technology is actually named Phantom after the F4 and Dragon Vision is named after the U2. Um, so yeah, the, the, we started off building balancing machines about 40 years ago. And then 11 years ago, we said, you know what? The balancing machines are great, but if we're doing balancing, we, we can do so much more. So uh, Thierry and myself and my wife sat down and decided that we were going to make a go of it. And, and uh, 11 years ago, broke off on our, out on our own and, and haven't looked back since. 
Nice. Fantastic. And uh, so you operate a headquarters is in uh, upstate New York then. Yes. Is is that anything north of New York City then? No. (laughs) So so you got New York should really be separated into like three or four different sections. You got the city, which is like Westchester and South. Then you got downstate, which is like the Catskills up to Albany. Then you got Albany North, which is upstate. And then you got Western New York, which is all, you know, West Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, out where like Doug Plucknot and Tony DiMatteo and all those guys live. Well, that's so I'm familiar with the, the Western part. I was born and raised in Western PA, Erie County. Sure. Went, went skiing as a kid in the in the harsh winters of the 70s up uh, Kissing Bridge, Cocaine, uh, Holiday Valley, that type of stuff. And For actually, sure. we, we did some Navy Reserve diving on the historic ships ported in, well, ported really stuck to the pier in Buffalo, which mm-hmm. actually they've recently had some challenges up there. But so, so are you from Albany then or, or what's, uh, what's, or where I'm are you actually, guys now? Yeah. We're, we're in Glens Falls, New York. Okay. So gotcha. That is uh, about 20 minutes North of Saratoga, which for all you Navy guys, everybody knows the Saratoga prototype site where mm-hmm. they, uh, they teach the Navy nuclear reactor school. Yeah. The nukes know it. I don't yeah. know if anybody <laughs> <laughs> any any other navy, navy divers don't know it or service uh, warfare guys we know newport you know that's sure. that's our new england uh claim to fame but good good okay well fantastic so did you grow up there yeah so my wife and i both grew up here in uh glens falls area and uh after traveling around and you know doing the military thing and then after the military working for ge and some very large corporations uh as well as some small ones like Comtest. Um, we decided that when we were going to go out on our own, we, we, we were moving home. So we moved home and, uh, haven't looked back since. And our office is right here in beautiful downtown Glens Falls. And it's about four miles to my house. So I can't complain. Fantastic. Well, that's, that's great. So what led you to your military career then? What, uh, what inspired you to, to join the air force after growing up in, in Glens Falls, New York? So my grandfather was an Air Force veteran. He uh, he was uh, in the Army Air Corps and then transitioned into the Air Force back in uh, 1949, I believe, was when that transition occurred. And uh, my uncle was also in the Air Force. And, you know, the options were limited. Um, my mom is a retired school teacher now, and my dad's a retired millwright from working in the paper industry. And you know, college just wasn't an option. I, I, I wasn't ready for it. Number one. And number two, um, financially, it was not an option. So uh, the military was a great option. And uh, I, I thank it. I thank my uh, lucky stars for the opportunity because uh, the military taught me the foundation of what I needed to, uh, to live out the rest of my career, I guess. Yeah, I really want to expand on that, too, as we move further into the interview. Um, so so you grew up there. You had some some family that was in the Army Air Force. That's going back, right? World War II Army oh, yeah. Air Force and uh, uncle and, then, and grandfather as well. And then you decided to you jump in. And how did it go from there? I mean, where did you go? What did you do? So I joined when I was 17. And that means my parents signed the papers for me, which uh, was great. I mean, I I turned 17 on July 8th. I left on July 28th. 
and uh, finished basic training. Uh, I don't even remember, like September, whenever it was, and wound up uh, first duty assignment was supposed to be George Air Force Base out in California. But when I got there, they had already moved the F-4s from George to Nellis. So uh, they ended up moving this young 17-year-old kid from uh, upstate New York to Las Vegas, Nevada, which was an interesting ride. But uh, yeah, I went, uh, I did two years working F-4 G models. Uh, I was a jet engine specialist, uh, worked G model F-4s, the wild weasels at Nellis and then deployed with those guys a number of times. Then uh, transitioned when we retired the F-4s to the A-10, worked A-10s with the 75th Fighter Squadron and deployed with them a number of times. And then uh, after that, went to the U-2 program, uh, working spy planes from uh, Beale Air Force Base and Osan, Korea, and did that for an, uh, about two years. And then after I got out, uh, I was recalled after September 11th and went back as a, uh, as a trainer teaching the, the younger guys how to work on the U-2s over in Cyprus. So it was, uh, it, it, it was a fun journey. I mean, I, I don't know that I could, uh, could have gotten that kind of experience, you know, through college or something like that. Very interesting. And did you say you were a, a jet engine tech or what was, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the, the Air Force nomenclature. I mean, I hear things in the army, like 43 Bravo and, and this sure. and that and the other thing is what's the, what's the specific rate or, or designator for, for what you did in the Air Force? So we call it an AFSC, which is an Air Force specialty code. And I was a 2A373J. So J... <laughs> Yeah. So a J shred, a J shred out just basically means I work on all the other airplanes that are not specific to a specific letter. Like, uh, you know, Chris, who's next door to me, he worked AC 130 gunships. He had his own shred out, but the J shred out is kind of like the, Hey, these are all the other airplanes that are, you know, getting old, getting ready to retire. (laughs) You're going to go work on them. So that's what I did. And uh, I ended up getting out as an E5. I was a staff sergeant. Oh, fantastic. I think the Air Force needs to simplify it a little bit more like the Navy. I mean, you can be a bosun mate, you know, first class bosun mate (laughs) or machinist mate or or anything like that. That's uh, well, you know, it's the corporate service, right? So you got got to be more. No, the corporate service is the Space Force. Like, ah, okay. We have yet to interview. So I've yet to meet anybody actually from Space Force. When you guys are ready, let me know. I know a few people. Oh, awesome. So well, that'd, that'd be fun. Yeah. I'd but, be uh, interested in learning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially my job was the combination of what you guys would call a plane captain and a machinist mate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so you were exposed to maintenance protocols that had been built over time and, yep. you know, sort of the discipline, I guess, of aircraft maintenance. Absolutely. Which is like, from what I understand, um, like Navy nukes, right? Very important, high reliability, absolutely high stress, and so that uh, that gave you from from day one, really, from yep. the age of you know just 17. Being 18 year old <laughs> or late seventeen, early eighteen, and in, in your formative years, and uh, how did that impact? you know, like what you did afterwards and, and, and really your breadth of experience. I mean, how did that enable you to, to get into the entrepreneurial world of maintenance and reliability 
condition so monitoring. It was kind of a, it was, it was just kind of a funny story because when I got out of the military, I, I had no idea. I was like, I did my six years. I had my GI bill. I was thinking, okay, now I'm ready to go to college. Um, I moved home and I wound up getting a job working at the paper mill with my father. And uh, that lasted about six weeks. And I realized this is not what I want to do. And um, I spent, spent a lot of time in my last two years working specifically engines and engine teardowns and engine rebuilds for the U2 program. So we would do a lot of time in the hush house, a lot of engine trim runs, a lot of balancing vibration analysis, things like that. Setting bearing tolerances, very, very precise maintenance. And um, yeah, so when I got out of the military, I, I went to go work at the paper mill. I'm like, this is this is like you're you're stepping back in time. This is, you just get a hammer and a, a grease gun, and, <laughs> and that's that that's your toolbox for the day there. Were so, they using brick grease when you were there? Dear God, yes. It was it was it was that's it something was an, not very many people ever get to see. Uh, no, it's grease. not. Yeah. And, and you know, there were bearing housings that had felt that was left over from the paper machine shoved into the bearing housing because the tolerance was so shot. They were so beat up <laughs> wow. so, and, they could, and they couldn't get the bearing housings anymore. Cause it was all cast iron material. And those paper machines were built in the you know, 1930s. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I realized very quickly that that wasn't the kind of maintenance that I wanted to do. And, and I ended up getting recruited by GE um, into their, uh, they call it the JMLOP program for non-commissioned officers and officers. And I ended up getting recruited and became a, a, a gas turbine engineer at GE. And, and uh, while I was at GE, worked uh, my way through school, finished my associates, finished my bachelor's, and then uh, went on to my master's after that, after I left GE. Oh, right. I didn't realize GE had a program like it doesn't surprise me, but yeah. I don't have any exposure to GE. And I, I was wondering, it makes me wonder what other organizations have similar type programs. Now, GE is sort of the, at least at that point in time, and maybe still today, I'm just not familiar, was a quintessential sort of house for, um, you know, all things good about corporate America, or at least that's what it looked like that, from the outside, right? Back, back when Jack Welch was there, I would agree yep. with you. So, yes. So, okay. So fantastic. So you took uh, a little bit of a, a meandering path, right? Coming out your transition was probably similar to mine. Weren't sure what you wanted to do, but you had college somewhere on the horizon and actually, you know, hit that with a full, head of steam when you were ready, right? And right, right. Blood blasted through bachelor and, and graduate courses and all that. And that's, I think that's a key message here, right? Don't force it if uh, if you don't feel like you're ready. The GI Bill is not going anywhere, right? Right. You've earned yeah. it. You got it. So make sure that it's the right place in the right time. I know when I went, I went through Penn State on the ROTC scholarship, and the folks who had been in the service before they had come to ROTC, the prior enlisted or, or maybe even, well, I guess it was all prior enlisted folks that were now in a commissioning program sure. were much, much more serious. And, and I suspect got more out of their college education than I did from the years 18 to uh, 22, 21 and a half, whatever it was. And you know, it just makes a difference. I mean, sure. I'm personally, I'm in a, in an online master's program now too. And I take it more seriously. I want 
to get a hundred percent. Well, yeah, because we're, <laughs> you know, right. when you're 17 yeah. or 18 years old, I mean, like I was not ready for college. There was no way. I mean, it would have been a waste of money, time, resources, everything where, you know, getting out of the military at 23, it was like, okay, I'm 23 years old. I've got my, I've, I've got that craziness out of my system for the most part. Um, I've got some discipline um, and some rigor that, you know, the military instilled in us and, uh, you know, took the, took it a lot more seriously than I ever would have without having gone into the military first. Well, without a doubt, I think um, the military experience is something that I promote for everybody. And I, you know, depending on your affiliation, you may feel like we should do the same thing that Israel does and, you know, make it compulsory. I think two years mandatory service isn't a bad idea. Yeah, That's my we, personal opinion. Well, we, I think we all, you know, become adults and we're all at different levels of maturity, right? When we go in, but sure. um, there's a consistency of, of where we all come out that is, is good and, and better and more disciplined and all that type of stuff. So, so sure. good. So tell me, tell me more about the, the GE program then was there, were you recruited or how did you find that particular program? Did you start so I, I, what happened was I was just, I was miserable working in this, you know, archaic 1950s, you know, a torque wrench didn't exist. It, it just didn't, they didn't have any precision tools, no precision philosophy. My father was a bull millwright. He would go in, you know, and pull a, a, a couch roll or a suction press roll and he'd do it by himself, but there was no, you know, how do we set the tolerances that like none of that stuff existed. So I just got sick of it. And I started looking around and GE and uh, back then GE and Schenectady, New York was still the home of corporate research and development. And it still is to, for the most part, but the gas turbine division of uh, GE's corporate research and development, which was the gas turbine technology laboratory um, ended up moving to South Carolina but I ended up getting on board right before that happened um, through their recruiting program. And it was, it was, it was a recruiting program. My, uh, my resume was uploaded through the um, veteran service officers office here at the local County level. And the VSO uploaded my resume and I got a call from a GE recruiter and they said, do you want to come down for an interview? I said, absolutely. And, uh, the rest was history. I mean, I ended up staying at GE for like six years. Fantastic. So that county level VSO was really the, uh, the helpful sort of linchpin or the way to, to slide your resume into the program to get considered. Yep. That, that's interesting. So, which goes to the point, there's probably, if you're, if you're looking right, if you're out there and you're poking around, I think one of the things is there's there's so many resources now with everything being online. It's it it could be difficult to tell what to do first, but maybe local is certainly worked for you. Yeah. Right. And and looking local and, and finding out perhaps a, a smaller office as opposed to lobbing it into something in DC or some global database where it maybe may get lost in the shuffle may help you find a local job too. And I think a lot of people go home right after they're, they're done with their time in the service. They want to get back to their roots or family support, which sure. is, which is also helpful if you're going to, if you got kids and you, you know, it's a busy world. Right. So 
Interesting. Yep. Okay. So you, you followed that, you followed that route. You got into GE. How long were you at GE then before you transitioned to your next? About six adventure? years. Okay. Yeah. It was fun. And, uh, it was a good, it was back then it was a good company. And, uh, what ended up happening is I worked, uh, in through continuous improvement. They put me through my six Sigma program, six Sigma green belt, black belt, all of that. Um, I learned a lot about, so transitioning from the military to like a corporate structure was, was not that hard for me because in the turbine laboratory, you know, it was, there was a coast guard that was the fire control operator. There was a coast guardsman that ran the fire control. There was a, a combustion engineer that was a former Navy uh, aviator there. You know what I mean? Like, so it was like, we were all kind of, we, we just kind of all got along together. It was weird. We were, it was almost like you were on a ship or something because, you know, the, the, the combustion engineer would say, bring it up to 2,700 degrees. And then I remember Billy Kogan, the coast guard guy going 2,700 degrees. I, sir. And it was like, <laughs> you get a little nautical pirates of the, the Caribbean plus yeah. US Navy and coast guard combined. I yeah. Yeah. We had Coast Guard, Air Force. Uh, we even had an Army guy that worked with us, too, for a while. He was an Abrams uh, tank mechanic. So it wasn't that hard. I think the the hardest part was when I left that position within GE. That's when I really had to like transition because that was a lot of military recruit people went into that kind of engineering field. And then I was like, oh, wow, I finished my bachelor's degree. What's my next career move? I'm going to go be an operations manager for a, a rebuild facility in Houston for GE. Well, that was a, a union shop. Um, so there was collective bargaining. I was a former military guy with literally no labor management experience, especially, uh, uh, you know, a, a collective bargaining labor unit. So I had to learn very quick, very fast. And uh, thankfully, had some very good mentors along the way. Interesting. Yeah. So similar to perhaps uh, going into a Department of Defense job or a civilian contracting with the military, right? That's an off ramp that a lot of people choose, especially if yeah. they've if they've been in the military for a long time, say 20 years, they know other people. And I know in the diving community that that sort of is a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, but for folks like you, got off back to duty in six years. I got off in four, and that my my soft op, so, sort of off ramp was, yes, I joined the corporate America and business development, but I stayed in the reserves. Sure. Right. So you you found another community that was military oriented until you went to Houston. Now, right. now I'm really I'm really interested in learning more about how your Navy experience and your leadership either helped you or, or, I mean, was it, was it hard to, it was very uh, hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it was very hard because, you know, when you're, when you're out on the flight line in the military and you have, you know uh, you're, you're a junior NCO, you know, I, I was a junior non-commissioned officer. So I had direct reports. I had, uh, I don't know, about 20 crew chiefs that worked for me on, on, on B flight and uh, you know, you tell somebody, Hey, you know what, go out and pull the, uh, pull the hellhole panel and change the bellows canister on five, six, one, everybody goes, okay, no problem. Got it. Where 
in the civilian sector, especially when I went to Houston, it was, you couldn't tell somebody to do something. You had to ask somebody to do something. And that's a very different way of thinking. So you have to understand what, you know, I had to learn what motivates people, how to get them um, to engage and, and to really be effective at their job and love their job, because it's not a, it's not the same. The, the people, the, there's different motivational factors, especially in, a, in, in that particular environment and in, in that collective bargaining environment. So I had a great uh, mentor that was uh, an HR director at GE, and she was also at that time a retired, I think she was either a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, I don't remember, but she kind of took me under her wing and, and her name was Diana Godfrey, and she kind of just brought me under her wing, showed me, you know, the ropes on how to deal with people because my people skills were very limited at that time. It was, it was all military focused. Even after the military in my initial job at GE, it was all military. So then I was lunged into this workforce where, you know, maybe there was four or five guys out of the 70 or 80 that worked for me that had been in the service. So it was, it was a difficult, it was a difficult transition, but, you know, like I said, finding a good mentor really helped me through that. And, uh, the first year was tough. The second year was a lot easier because I had, I had kind of figured out what works and what doesn't work. Well, and that's, I think that's key learning as well. Two, two really, really important things that you highlighted here is to find first off, realize that you're in a new place. There's probably yeah. three things. Realize that you're in a new environment that it's like, okay, danger, Will, Will Robinson. I, uh, you know, <laughs> these people didn't sign enlistment oaths here and yeah, I'm going to obey the orders of the, those appointed above me. Right. And uh, okay. So you realize you're in a different environment. You're, you're find an HR partner, which is becoming more and more, I think I would say helpful and common today, even though you, sure. guys, you know, you have your HR partner in your office, which happens to be your life partner, but you know, it's a good <laughs> metaphor, right? <laughs> especially, especially for folks who are really driven by mission accomplishment. I mean, and, sure. and I've experienced some of this too, right? That, uh, I mean, we're so driven on fulfilling the mission and, and one team, one goal. Uh, when we start swimming in this different pond that is uh, corporate America, it can be, it can be frustrating. It can be like, whoa, I, who should, who do I trust? What, you know, what's going on here? And, and, oh, it's for a, sure. and it can be a new, uh, new skill set for people to learn. It's not a reason to give up or, or to bail out. Right. It's certainly a reason to uh, get to the next, level vertically in in your maturity and and management and all that type of stuff so that's that's cool that's yeah. that's a great uh, great example of of taking your military experience and then uh adapting really yeah. to a new circumstance yeah. it was definitely like we weren't in kansas anymore you know <laughs> but it, at the end of the day it was you know that mentor really helped me get through that kind of stage of my career development. Yeah. And, and we all need it, right. Sure. I mean, especially in corporate America, I don't know how it was at, at GE, but um, I've seen precious few examples of sort of middle management and then executive 
leadership training, like, you know, in, in the Navy, and I've heard about this in the Air Force and the Army and the Marines as well, is, you know, when you get to a certain point, you go to school to learn how to be a department head or to be a CO or an XO of a unit or even a staff officer, general officer, as, as you move up in the ranks and uh, in the outside well, world, man, you got to lean on, you don't lean on other people, right? Well, Your you got to lean on other people or you got to teach yourself. The, <laughs> right. the, mil- the military, you know, I remember I went to Airman Leadership School. Airman Leadership School prepared me to become an NCO. I went to NCO Leadership School to become a better NCO, you know, whereas get good luck finding that. But in, in the corporate world, at least. But there yeah, are yeah. other there are other programs out there. Like, I mean, we were just talking about it, my wife and I, today. Um, our local chamber of commerce has a thing they call Leadership Adirondack. And it's a great program to take, you know, it, kind of middle management people or middle leadership people within an organization and give them the opportunity to, you know, build on their skill set. So we're, we're actually going to be sending one of our, maybe two of our people to that um, through that program, because the the businesses in the world today don't seem to have that kind of uh, approach. You know, it's like they're looking for somebody who already has all of that. You know, they already went to school. They already have the experience. Let's hire that person. Well, without a doubt. And I think, uh, you know, as we as we evolve past the pandemic, <clears throat> there there's so many challenges in, in business today not the least of which are system challenges and the IT and technical systems that are there supposed to help us. And, you know, they, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I'm sure Dragon and Phantom are are working just the way, (laughs) just the way they should. Uh, But um, I mean, not, not all leaders and managers, even if they are completely capable and cut out may not even have the time to engage in the way they want. So I think uh, executive coaching, I think this, this leadership and Adirondack, I mean, what's, what's available to you locally. And, and then the training that you got in your pre NCO school, your NCO uh, schools in the air force to, you know, at least be aware of what's going on. So, so were you automatically sort of considered automatically, were you, considered it for a managerial position because of your experience in the service, do you think, or that combined with your experience in your first assignment at GE? I mean, how did you get to that leadership job in, in Houston? Well, it was, it was a combination of the military service for sure, but then also, you know, performance within the, the, the technology laboratory, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I had three years of, proving myself within that position to, uh, to be able to show, you know, the senior leadership that I was the right cut of cloth, so to speak for the next level. And, you know, as soon as at GE corporate America, Oh, wow, you got to the next level. If you want to get to the next level, you got to get a master's degree. And it's like, okay, I'll play the game. Um, but that's kind of the way that it works. You know, it's, uh, and, and, and I have a very similar philosophy here. You know, I would, I would love to hire, in fact, we, we try to hire military whenever we can. Um, the biggest problem right now is finding good candidates. Hmm. Just in general, right? In general. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You get 12 applications, all of them scheduled for an interview and two of them show up. It's like, 
well, I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a societal issue, I think. And uh, so you're in the middle of this too, and and perhaps from this podcast, you know, more transitioning veterans will hear that you're hiring, and you know, they'll contact you, and maybe we'll get absolutely the more out of it because I think really the the precarious place uh, in the transition is is figuring out what that first job is. And in your experience is not dissimilar to to many that we hear from that, okay, I went to the paper mill and within two years or maybe within six months, you figured out <laughs> that was not where you belonged, right? But but it was like that I gotta check this box. I gotta make sure I've got food on the table and everything's for sure rolling. Uh, whereas perhaps with um, some mentorship from, a, you know, somebody in the military had already been through it, or, or if you're connected and somehow then, and I haven't met a vet yet, that's not willing to, to help people coming out of the For military. Sure. So, and um, there's also like, I mean, there's, there's all these other organizations too. I mean, the VFW has their own VSOs. The American Legion has their own VSOs. I'm involved in both of them. Um, it, it, the, it's really sad. I mean, I don't know how it was when you got out, Eric, but when I got out of the military, I remember going through the transition assistance program office tap, and, it, yep. and it was like, here's a checklist of stuff. You know, you're, here's how to write a resume. Here's how to submit your resume. And, uh, do you have any questions? You know, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good, good luck. Thanks for the last six years. You know, that's kind of what it was back then. And, uh, now it's, now, I, I don't know if it's changed that much, but I know that um, it's it's far more digitized. So when somebody is getting out, like we work with local uh, VSOs within the transition assistance program offices, and they all have connections to industry locally. So, you know, there's a huge Fab 8 chip plant right here near us in, in Albany, New York, and that's a that's a huge recruiting source for a lot of people that are retiring from like the 109th air wing mm. and uh other local units so well it, and once somebody gets in that's part of the the tribe right then they can pull out and and recruit and uh perhaps you know their circle of friends and and draw hey, them in with them our vp of engineering is in the office right next door to me and he was an ac-130 gunship crew chief and i've known him for close to 20 years. I was the best man in his wedding. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot of trust in, in common language, like Jordan and Pippin out there, right? You guys know each other. You've known each other for a long time. He knows when you're going left, he goes right. And, uh, and, you know, and you cover it. Yeah. So, so good, good. So did you go directly into entrepreneurial adventures after GE or what was, where'd you go after GE? No, I went to go work for uh, Allied with uh, John Schultz. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Great guys. Uh, him and Chris Klosterman, Chris Klosterman was, and, and John were both great mentors to me, um, taught me a lot. And then after that went on, I, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take this, everything that I've learned and let me see if I can apply this to like maintenance management. So I took on a role as a maintenance manager at a chemical plant and then plant manager of the same chemical plant. And then uh, out of nowhere got, contacted by uh jack dishner and uh john cochran from Comtest, and they asked me because of my vibration and balancing and everything else if i'd be willing to come along on the ride of bringing Comtest from new zealand into the u.s so i did that 
and then GE bought Comtest. And that's when I said, that's it. I've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going back. I'm only going forward. I'm only going forward. So that's when we took the leap and went out on our own. And, and we've been there for 11 years now. And it's been a, you know, it's crazy. You know, the, the, I remember our first year in business. And then about two years ago, I was like, we did what we did in our first year in business in one month, you know, because that's how the business has grown. And um, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun journey. I think the, the entrepreneurial part, one of the things that, again, it was mentorship throughout my whole career. I've had great mentors, John, mm-hmm. Chris, uh, Joe Tora at GE, uh, Mr. Uh, Dave Dyson at GE, and then uh, most recently, John Cochran from Comtest, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is none of these guys were military. So I had all these mentors, but I think I picked these mentors because, um, they had something I didn't have. I had this military mindset of like, take the hill. And they had this more business acumen, very, uh, strategic philosophy that I said, you know what, that's something I didn't learn in the military. So I absorbed as much as I could, like a sponge from people like that. And then when I was ready, went out on my own. Jason Trancher has been a great mentor of mine over the years. I mean, he's probably one of the smartest guys in the industry. And he was very helpful and very instrumental in helping me just get to where I am today. Oh, that's that uh, awareness, the, the aspiration for lifelong learning and seeking out uh, people that uh, can help you not being not to be threatened by them right as a competitor or anything like that like gee you, you know I'd like to learn this and I mean in your experience has any of those have any of those folks said no sorry don't have time you know I've already got 45 people I'm mentoring or they're, they're like oh you're the first person who asked come on <laughs> no I think that that's the interesting yeah. thing is everybody that I've always kind of uh, hitched my wagon to from a learning perspective, they've, they've always been ready to teach, you know? And I think that that's just in the inherent nature of that personality type. Mm-hmm. You know, Jason is a teacher. John Schultz is a teacher. John Cochran is a teacher. They, they, that's what they love to do. They love to share their knowledge. And, and I'm hoping, you know, throughout that kind of mentorship, I'm able to pass on a little bit of what I've learned from them in my career um, to others. Uh, what what great examples of of leadership, right, in the yeah. industry, and and I think that's the common theme and the common thread, and and certainly exposed to well, good, bad, and medium average, I would say, leadership in in the military, of course, above average. I mean, I think the the military has the best leadership program in the in the world, uh, perhaps, whether or not everybody takes it on appropriately or not is another question, but at least that exposure um, can perhaps give you a clue or a hint as to the people around you that might be able to to help out. So that's, that's great. And I'm sure uh, those folks will be happy to hear that you're, (laughs) you mentioned them and uh, that you were, that they are a part of uh, your success. And they're probably delighted to see how you guys are doing today. So, all right. So let's uh, take a breath here and see where we're at in in the process. We got a few more minutes left and I've got a few more questions here. So 
let's see uh, what um, let's talk next Dave about what advice you would give to any service member planning to transition to the civilian world that you wish you had when you made the move. I would say that the best advice is I, when I got out, I didn't have someone to kind of guide me along the way. And like you had pointed out, Eric, there's a lot of people that get out of the military and then they go take a GS job or they go take a a defense contractor job or something like that. Right. Uh, Had I thought about it, I mean, gosh, I could have done the same thing, but I didn't think about it. All I had was a, a, a tunnel vision focus of I've been gone for six years. I want to go home. And had I thought about it, I probably could have, you know, very easily gone into Lockheed or, or something like that, because I knew guys that had retired and had gone to work for Lockheed on the U2 program as civilians. So I I could have done the same thing. Um, So from an advice perspective, I, I would say the most valuable advice that I wish I could have given myself back then is don't have tunnel vision. You know, the military taught us to be open-minded and be very, you know, globally, uh, aware, so to speak. Mm. So, you know, don't be, Oh, I've been gone for six years. I just want to go home. Maybe there's something else out there that you're completely missing. That's, that's interesting. And I, I mean, I can relate. It was the same way. Right. So, so coming out, I'm like, okay, well, what is common sense at that point in my time, in my life, young, mid twenties, what should I do? Okay. Well, Noah has a diving program. So let's apply to Noah. Um, I think I like the high speed stuff. So I'm going to go apply to the secret service, which I did. And that took forever. And I might've gotten a job offer. I don't know, but it took too long. And I was, I was uh, yeah, I already had another job. Um, you know, I, I can drive a ship. So can I be a tugboat captain? And I think maybe what you're what you're pulling on a thread here is that seek connections or seek connectivity as opposed to looking for a job it's just like let's go straight for the hardest possible answer let's go find a job right. for me and i know what i need and i know what i want cuz we don't at that no. point we really have no clue and we're we're trying so what happened to me navy diver surface warfare guy i mean you you went in, you were aircraft, like precision maintenance all over the place to a paper mill. I went from ship driving, Navy diving to selling lubricants, right? So it's like, right. how, you can't, I mean, how can you conceive what, how those two like? Yeah, it'd be better if you jumped, uh, jumped into a tribe of mentors, so to speak, or you figured out that network connectivity in the area that you want to be or within the, the group that you're, you're exiting it just, as I think back upon it, it just became this, okay, the service is behind me, they're back there, I'm out here kind of by myself, it sounds like mm. you had the similar thing, but at least, you know, you connected back home with your dad and, and some well, folks. Yeah. I think the other thing was, is like, when I, when I came home, I remember very specifically, it was like, all right, I'm going to use my GI bill. So I walked into Excelsior college here in New York and I handed them my DD 214. And I said, what is this worth? And they were like, oh, uh, they did an evaluation. They were like, oh, so you need to take humanities and western civ or whatever it was it was some i think that's what they were western civ and humanities and they were like you can have your associate's degree 
And I was like, what's my associate's degree going to be in? And they're like, maintenance technologies. I'm like, well, it sounds like I'm going to be heading into the maintenance career path, you know, because that's what I had oh, done. Oh, interesting. So they had some sort of um, system to evaluate your, yeah. your Air Force, like your your designator or your Well, they take your DD-214 and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of colleges that do it now, but like 20 years ago that that, there wasn't. So like Excelsior College was the only one that I knew of. And that was because VSO turned me on to them. Mm -hmm. So I walked in, handed them my DD-214 and walked out an hour later, enrolled in two courses and that was it. So I, I would say, you know, from an advice perspective, don't cut your military training short either, because that military training, no matter what you've done. I don't care if you were handing out basketballs at the, at the gym, that military training has, has academic equivalency. So don't be afraid to walk into, you know, university of Phoenix or your local community college or whatever, and find out what that's worth. Cause it's worth something. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And not only is that in, it sounds like, and I don't have this experience, but it sounds like from your experience that universities perhaps have a, a rating system where they can draw those equivalencies. Absolutely. On, like automatic, like there's already a system in place, whereas corporate America in, in translating a resume does not have no. that, right. Does not have that. So great. And, and it sounds like the VSOs are really a key part of your, your transition and getting you into the right zone. So that's, that's great guidance. Okay. So you've had experience. Wow. Through, you know, a bunch of large, medium and small organizations, <coughs> excuse me, transitioning into a large organization with military people in it already is kind of, you know, it's kind of like the same thing, but then you, yeah. you went around and did other things. What guidance would you share with anybody trying to hire folks out of the military to help them connect you know, with veterans appropriately? I, I, I would say that the, the military veteran brings such a unique skill set to the table, both in terms of discipline and rigor and um, accountability and teamwork. Like those are things that, that those things don't get taught, you know, especially in university or in, in high school or, or trade school. You know, those, those things aren't, aren't necessarily taught. Whereas when you have those, those skill sets coming out of the military, because it's just deeply ingrained in your in your psyche, you know, like those things are worth something. And I would take a military veteran that handed out basketballs over uh, a bachelor's degree engineer for, you know, an engineer, not necessarily an engineering position, but maybe like a customer service, customer support, something like that. I would take one of those guys over the other, because quite frankly, I know that I can count on them. So understanding that work ethic and accountability and discipline and rigor is, is something that as an employer, there's nothing more valuable than those like four or five elements for a, a, a good employee. Yeah. You touched on this. This is the resiliency, the accountability, the, you know, yes, I need to be up and at them at a certain time so I can fulfill my, my duties to my yeah. co-work and and uh the people are paying my my paycheck absolutely that that that, that's it's 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 irreplaceable you know you can't teach those skills i i can try to teach those skills but you know it would make me want to become a drill instructor and i i don't want to do that (laughs) (laughs) 
Right, exactly. So even in your six years enlisting at 17, you you also had leadership experience, um, right? With yeah. a couple, couple people, maybe up to 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 I, or whatever. I had, yeah. I had 16 guys on the flight line over in Al Jabber, Kuwait, in, in the desert as a 22-year-old NCO. You know, it, it was weird, but, you know, you grow up very fast in the military. There's no doubt about that because there's no room for childish behavior. Yeah, that's right. People, people die, right? Yep. You, you're on the wrong, wrong end of that jet engine. You know, when you're walking across the flight line, actually, I've got a Vietnam vet friend of, of mine who's, who actually saw a helicopter pilot who was coming back from a mission and was not thinking right or whatever, walked into a tail rotor and, yep. and, and you know, situational, not, not good. Yeah. Not good. Right. So yeah. you make, make a mistake like that when you're walking around Kroger, it's not that big of a deal, but <laughs> when you're in the wrong end, wrong end of a uh, machine gun or a jet engine or a helicopter, you're, you could be in trouble. So, well, it's, it's also the, the, like working on jet engines or working on like a Navy nuclear reactor. I imagine they're kind of a similar philosophy because if something goes wrong, people die. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's the reality of it. People are counting on you. My pilots, one of my best friends to this day is, was one of my pilots in the air force. And, you know, he's a great guy. I still talk to him on Facebook mostly, but you know, he, he taught me a lot just, and he wasn't much. The crazy thing was Eric is he was not much older than me. (laughs) Right on. You know, he, he was an A-10 pilot. He ended up, uh, going to the academy and he got out of the academy, went through flight training and everything. I think he might've been when I was 22 or 23, he might've been 26. Eric Grace, just a great guy, you know, and he, those guys count on us to keep the plane in the air. That's right. That's (laughs) right. There's no more important mission than that. For sure. He's got to be able to focus on uh, launching artillery downrange or, or, depleted uranium rounds through tanks or whatever yeah. you're shooting at. Right. Uh, and not worried about whether or not the, you know, the engines are going to work for properly. sure. <laughs> exactly. That's the least of his worries. I don't want to worry about that engine. I want to make sure that I've got enough, you know, that the gun's going to fire when I want it to, that all pylons are going to dismount when I want them to. And yeah, it's uh, I miss it, but that's also why, you know, even in the culture that we've created at our company, it's a very similar philosophy it's a you know everybody's counting on each other and when somebody's not here you know it's it's noticed and and everybody you know we all work together it's that it it, you can't it 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 can't be duplicated but it's it's close yeah yeah well lives aren't on the line if an invoice doesn't go out properly or somebody you know doesn't pay their bill and bill in 45 days or something like that and i think that's you know, this is a key point that you've brought up that when, when you're in the high risk environment and the stakes are higher, high risk, high stakes, um, there tends to be a sense of urgency, less patience with um, non-performance and that type for of sure. thing. And, and I think that's really, really important for folks to get their head around as they come out of the military. So they're just not anxious and aggravated all the time. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, a lot of these guys are guys and girls are like, well, I, I just can't take this. I got to get 
back into whatever I was doing in another capacity, either as a contractor or whatever. Right. right? And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you can do a young person's job as long as you're young. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, things just don't work the same at 55 as they did at 25 and it's a little harder to, to, to recover. So, so eventually um, getting your mind around that and, you know, letting, letting life mature and, and take its, it take its path is also uh, important. So great point. Sure. Great point. So Dave, what uh, haven't we covered today that you wanted to make sure you related to listeners as you and your PR director over in your quarter helped, <laughs> helped out? What, what have we missed today? Well, yeah. I, I think the, the biggest thing is like when you're getting out of the military, be selectful. You know, don't don't jump at the first thing that, you know, the first opportunity that presents itself, because there are so many uh, great opportunities with great companies that that value that military leadership experience and that military experience that, you know, not jumping at the first one isn't it's okay because you will find the right fit. And, And if you're not if you don't know where to look for the right fit look to your VSO, look to your VFW, mm-hmm. look to your American Legion, contact some of your former colleagues from the military that have gotten out and gone through this process themselves. Don't be afraid to, uh, to step outside the box. You know, um, I found, I was lucky. I, I consider myself very lucky because I found a, a job that was close enough to where I felt like I had that camaraderie and that teamwork Um, And it helped me transition quicker, but I also know some other guys that haven't found that. And they go into things like I'm also, I, for a while I was a volunteer EMS guy. So I was an EMT. Well, that's a very brotherhood type focus where, you know, you you get that camaraderie and people are counting on you type thing Um, that you can find those types of things. They're not that hard to find. Even if you, your job doesn't have that, you can find something else that can fill that void. Maybe it's, uh, you know, at the VFW or volunteering as a firefighter or something like that. Now, t- two great points there. I mean, there's, there's other brotherhoods and sisterhoods out there. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, the, the police firefighters, EMS, I mean, there's, there's other brotherhoods that just volunteering Absolutely. Right, for, for veteran causes. Right. So and then the the other point, I, I love it. Beautiful. Uh, be selectful. Be patient. Don't settle. Right. Don't settle. I mean, the worst thing that could happen out of it is that you get into a negotiating position where you make more money. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> or you play, wind up at a paper mill. <laughs> yeah. Or play hard to get a little bit. Right. Play. And uh, you know, because it is a hot job market, not only if it wasn't a hot job market, but the thing that um, really happens is if you, you tend to anchor yourself perhaps at a lower, lower point than you should be. If you settle, find out more, you know, ask questions, you know, negotiate. And if it doesn't feel right culturally, it probably isn't right. And if you're interviewing and they don't, they don't put the value on your military experience that you think it's worth. And we all know it's worth find another interview. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you can't get across to them that my six years in the military is worth a two-year degree or worth a four-year degree, and they can't conceptually understand that, you don't need to be interviewing with them. Find somebody else that gets it. Yeah, that's right. Spot on. 
Spot on, man, for sure. Because you you get uh, involved in a bad situation. It's no different than, you know, getting involved with the the wrong life partner, right? You, That's right. You know, it <laughs> you got it at least for for six months, maybe two years, maybe longer, and uh, you know you don't want it to become a regret. So set out on the right foot for sure. That's right, and and uh, with eyes wide open. So good. Well, Dave, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and help us on this mission. How can folks get a hold of you if they want to learn more? Are you on LinkedIn and yep, you can look me media? up on LinkedIn. I'm uh, on LinkedIn. You can look me up on uh, our company website, uh, airbest-instruments.com, and my email address, mdavid at airbest-instruments.com. Always available. Always happy to help and especially for any of my brothers and sisters that are getting out and they're looking for maybe just advice. I'm happy to help. All right. True patriotic American coming up on the 4th of July here. Before we close out, I want to remind our listeners that please give us a five-star rating, Both Dave and I <laughs> would appreciate that because that'll help on the podcast. And also we've got uh, Mobius conference in Indianapolis coming up middle of September. So I believe there's going to be a veteran track there too. So anybody listening that wants to learn more can find out more through the folks at Mobius. Thank you, Dave. And thank you. Thanks, Mobius. Yeah. Thanks buddy. I appreciate it, brother. And thank you Mobius for providing this platform to help both transitioning vets, as well as those looking to hire them in the field of maintenance and reliability. Have a great fourth, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Veterans Connected. We will see you back for another episode very soon. In between, we hope to see you in the Veterans Connected community group where you can meet Eric and fellow podcast guests and share with other industry veterans at mobiusconnect.com. And we hope to see you there.